And we really need to talk about the mystery first in order for the rest of the text to make sense. Um, and so, so what is this mystery? You see it in verse 26. Um, he describes the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. So the intention this morning as we talk about this mystery is not necessarily to unveil the mystery. The mystery has been unveiled already, um, but we want to look back and see how this idea was developed a little bit and understand why Paul's saying this to the early church 2,000 years ago, something that now we're very familiar with. Isn't that kind of how a mystery works? Like once the secret is out, it becomes quite common, becomes common knowledge at least. Um, and so, at the center of this text, Paul discusses a divine mystery that is unveiled. So, mystery, quite simply, in, at least in the biblical sense, is this unmanifested or the private counsel of God. See, God keeps secrets too. And this is, he's, he's describing the releasing, the unveiling of one of God's secrets, uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 kind of discusses this idea, right? He says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed to us, they belong to us and our children forever. So what, what's happening here is really a development of Old Testament promises. That God, as we look back to the beginning, and we trace this theme quite often, don't we? Is that back in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, the immediate move of God is mercy, and his immediate thoughts, even in his curse of the serpent, is this, that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise his head, your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So this idea, this image of a serpent crusher. So there's that, that is a promise. It's a prophecy. That's wonderful. It tells us a lot. And it leaves out more, doesn't it? As you progress through the Revelation, um, progressive not in value, but in content, in volume. Revelation builds as we move through Genesis. And we've seen that even in our sermon series through that, that, that when God chooses Abraham, he chooses out this man as the leader of his family, this chosen family in chapter 12, verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you... All of the families of the earth will be blessed. Big promise. Tells us a lot and leaves out a whole lot more. Isn't that one of the things we've seen about Abraham and Sarah? Is that it really requires faith to trust in these promises of God because they say something really big and you have no idea how it's going to take place. As we progress even more through Revelation, we'll have David and, and God promises to him that, that his throne is going to be an everlasting throne that his son will sit on the throne forever. You move through and to the prophets, and the prophets speak all about this person in a variety of ways, probably most clearly and thoroughly in Isaiah, the suffering servant uh, who substitutionarily gives himself for, uh, for the redemption of his people. So you have that, and we've worked through the minor prophets, and we've seen all sorts of pictures of this great deliverer and the righteous restorer of Zion, the one who's going to bring back God's ways, all of these things. It, when, we, when we work through 1 Peter, 
in chapter 1, we saw this. I want to remind you of this text. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. It said this, Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and they searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. And they searched out what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them was indicating when the Spirit of Christ testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And to them, those prophets, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So we have, as we just, and I know that's quick, but just as we briefly look back over the redemptive history, that God's people knew from very long ago that there was this cosmic deliverance, that salvation is coming, that restoration is promised, but the details were absolutely veiled, particularly the timing of this restoration, deliverance, salvation, and the person who this deliverer would be. Not anymore, right? That's the idea. This is the mystery that's been veiled when it would be and who it would be and how exactly all these details are going to come to pass. And when Christ is born, when God himself is incarnated as a human and as he grows and he begins his ministry and he starts even then in veiled ways saying who he is, what he's about to do and calling people to follow him, he's progressively showing and displaying his majesty, his splendor, his divinity. So, it's after then all of his work, what he did on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension, that these peoples that he, he has chosen to now go deliver the unveiled mystery, to go tell everyone that it's no longer uncertain. It's no, we're no longer confused. We're no longer wondering when deliverance is going to take place. Deliverance just took place. We're no longer wondering who it's going to come through. It just came through Christ. You can see that connection very clearly in the early apostolic sermons, Peter and Paul. Even Peter's sermon at Pentecost is very much like this. He's like, look at this thread, and I'm telling you, it's Jesus that's the fulfillment of these promises. Okay, so this is the mystery unveiled. Now, Paul, in his epistles, he is probably the one to deal with this the most frequently. He uses this mystery, uh, mystery uh, 21 times. And particularly in Colossians and Ephesians, he develops the theological theme. So four times in Colossians, we'll find mystery, and three of them are in our text today. That's why it's kind of rising to prominence. So in this text, and you have to follow along with me, one of the interesting things is that there are a lot of appositional statements easy way to think about apposition is just an equal sign between two things. So he's saying this, which is that, which is that. He's equating ideas. And so as you look here, you have the mystery in verse 26, which is hidden from the ages, from generations, now is revealed. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So our first appositional statement is that in the, the mystery equals a glorious wealth. There's tremendous treasure that's, that is the mystery. 
So when you reveal the mystery, what you're revealing is a tremendous treasure. Immediately following that, he says at the end of verse 27, um, which is Christ in you. So the mystery equals a great treasure, and that mystery, the great treasure, is Christ in us. That is the inestimable valued treasure that has now been revealed in the person and work of Christ. Christ in us. One last appositional statement, the hope of glory, or in this case, I think it is the glorious hope that we have. So it's, a, it's the mystery that is a glorious treasure that is Christ that is our glorious hope. So all of these things are equal, okay? Where is it in Colossians and in Ephesians, they, these both together, where is it primarily? What aspect of this mystery of Christ, the great treasure that is brought to the surface in these two epistles? And that is the phrase in the middle of verse 27, what are the riches of the glory of this mystery? Where? Among the Gentiles. The place you would least expect for Christ to be in someone. For Christ to be not only walking around, not only going out of his way to meet a Samaritan woman, but indwelling Gentiles. That's unusual. So Jesus Christ is displayed, is, or is not just displayed to, but lives in the people of the nations. And that is something that is most certainly alluded to throughout the Old Testament. Um, even described that, you know, God, in the prophets, God's going to go outside the boundaries of Israel and gather all of these people in, which is, again, a wonderful promise, but that doesn't really make total sense until Christ arrives and until his apostles are sent out to all of the world. Ephesians 3 does describe this beautifully, and I'd like to read the first eight verses. It says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known, right? that's necessary for a mystery, previously unknown, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit, to his holy apostles and prophets, in order that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Okay, so this is Paul's apostolic responsibility. This is the weight that Jesus himself has laid upon Paul. And this is a very surprising means of God's fulfillment of his promise. 
So the incarnation of God to the obedience of God to the death of God and the resurrection of God, all in order to deliver and expand his covenant family beyond the borders of Israel to the entirety of humanity. So hope, right, this glorious hope, is exploding out of Jerusalem into the whole world as the messengers of the mystery go forth, okay? So that's the idea. It's not just that there's one exclusive mystery exactly. Like in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul's describing these same things, and he says, uh, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and steward uh, and stewards of the mysteries of God. So the idea is that there's a variety of maybe different aspects of this mystery that are all being unveiled. While there's numerous ones in relationship uh, to redemption, they're all related to the person and the work of Christ. So Paul speaks then of him, of Christ, in great detail and great repetition, because <laughs> this is the mystery that must be understood. Okay, so how does that, how does that mystery in Colossians relate really to the bigger picture of the book and to what's going on? So we're going to remember two links. One of them is remembering that the link between these two texts is Paul, Paul's ministry himself. He's identified at the end of verse 23 as a minister of the gospel that has produced great abundance in the Lycus Valley. And then if you look um, at the end of verse 25, okay, so Paul's describing this responsibility that he's been given. He became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to him for them, the Colossians, to do what? To fulfill the word of God. So you remember our string of appositions. We had mystery, great treasure, Christ, great hope, glorious hope. Well, now we have, we're going to put one on the beginning. So there's five. It's this word of God, which leads right into his restatement, this word of God, which is the mystery which has been hidden. So the reason that the mystery of God is linked to the Apostle Paul is because that is his job. That's his complete task. All of his life is poured into making known to the world this mystery. So now what he's doing, what Paul's doing is he's explaining his relationship to them, his responsibility to them, which is the bulk of the text. Now, I'm going to argue this morning that this passage in Colossians presents the role of the pastor with great clarity. In order to get there, though, we have to move from apostle to pastor, because that's not the same thing, is it? We're, I am not an apostle. Pastor Matt is not an apostle. Neither do we have the same precise call that, that Paul has. Um, so the, the, the apostles, they functioned in this temporary role. And the reason that God engaged them was to establish and expand the church, primarily revolving around the communication, the clear communication of these mysteries. So to deeply root the church in the mystery of Christ, the greatest treasure, that responsibility was generally regional. He sends them all out to various places, and you see them traveling on their missionary journeys. Most strongly, we follow Paul, then we know some about Peter, and there's a whole variety of these other apostles that went in different directions over east and Asia and south and to Africa. And so they're all expanding. 
So it's regional as Jesus sent the apostles to different areas of the world. Now that Jesus is unveiled, he must be proclaimed. But what happens is that as a part of the apostolic stewardship of the gospel, the apostles train pastors. The apostles train shepherds, leaders. We, we know many of them in the New Testament text, probably most clearly Timothy and Titus. Even in, in Colossians, we have Epaphras come to the front. And these shepherds of the church, they have perhaps a more particular responsibility, not to a region, but to a local assembly. The task of the pastor, it's not identical to the apostle, but, but the two are connected at the hip. And Paul and Epaphras are, are really good examples of that. The text here is primarily communicating the common responsibilities of the two of them. So what is that responsibility? What, what's really what rises to prominence in the text? And there's no lack of opinions about that, meaning the more general question, what is a pastor supposed to do? <laughs> we see that displayed in a, in a number of different ways all across uh, our nation, certainly, and beyond there. Um, it's misunderstood from the outside. I can say even as a pastor, normally if, if I'm in conversation with somebody and they say, so what do you do? And you say you're a pastor. Well, that either launches you into a conversation or completely shuts down a conversation. <laughs> it's either like, oh, okay, cool, I'm out. Or like, oh, wow, that's so interesting, and you're now on a spiritual conversation. But from the outside, there's significant misunderstanding of what the role of a pastor is in the New Testament. Most commonly, you'll get questions like, oh, that, wait, you do that full-time? What, like, what do you do? What do you do all the time? Don't you just work one day a week? That kind of an idea. Um, and I think there's misunderstanding on the inside as well of what really this is all about, what the pastor's busy doing all the time. As you look around in other churches, you see a variety of pastoral roles displayed, the role of you know, motivator, the role of friend, business administrator, program coordinator, visitor magnet, professional mover, you know, all of these things that they do. And, and one of the reasons those... Um, I think, arise so often is because they're very traceable misunderstandings. Like, all of those do have some sort of root in the role of a pastor, in his relationship to the people, in his service to the people, and that sort of a thing. So, this text is going to give us a very clear picture. So, if we had first the mystery, now we have the minister, okay? Not my favorite word, but, you know, starts with them, just like mystery. So the minister, what is he to do? The minister is to persevere in preaching and in prayer. The minister is to persevere in preaching and in prayer. The first one of those is very easy to demonstrate from the text. Preach Christ to Christ's body. That's verse 28. After this description of the mystery that we talked through, he, he immediately re uh, replies, Him, Christ, we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to His working, which works in me mightily. So preach Christ to Christ's body. When we consider the string of appositional statements... To preach Christ is to preach what else? The whole Word of God. 
the mystery that's unveiled. It's to preach the greatest treasure known to man. It is to preach Christ, and it is to preach a glorious hope. That all is what we preach. It's a great privilege. Paul describes that throughout, I mean, any time he talks about his responsibility as an apostle. Uh, he knows that it's a privilege. It's a call from God. And there's a variety of ways that this is demonstrated. He says with warning, and he says with teaching. So there's a lot of ways in which preaching shows up, but we know that it's personal, and we know that it's vocal, and we know that it's based upon what the Word of God has to say. You might even be able to jump out of this corporate preaching into counseling scenarios where we do private preaching. It's the same thing where we open up the Word of God and we say, what does this have to say for our life? How does it instruct us? How does it teach us? Reminding us of hope, causing us to treasure the, riches, the richness of Christ, all of these things. So there's a variety of ways in which it shows up. Sometimes this word, this word of warning, you think of a more stern word, as Paul's kind of doing here. He's very gracious and loving to the Colossians, but it's a watch out, beware this cliff. There's some of that in it. Other times it's just instruction and walking through the text um, and, and saying what God has to say. It's all of these things. And one of the things that's a quality that, that probably is particular to the ap- apostle, um, but has implications for the pastor, is he says his mission is to do this with every man, every person. There's not, a, not a one in this world that the Apostle Paul doesn't want to teach the mystery to. And I do think that is more related to his regional responsibility. But if we take that to our local family and even to you know, our, our neighborhood, our interaction with other people, as we interact as saints, we, there's no discrimination of how we share the word. Right? Every individual has value Every individual has a soul that is headed toward eternity. And so we speak freely and boldly and graciously, right? Seasoned with, seasoned with grace. It's appealing. It's attractive. And for us as shepherds, even in the family of faith, there's not a one that we would not joyfully counsel. There's not a one we wouldn't freely share the word with. There's no, kind of as he talked about in chapter one, when he said that they have love for all the saints, that was one of the marks of the gospel in them. I think a mark of a good and faithful pastor would be preaching to all the saints. One of the reasons that corporate preaching is important, one of the reasons that being here is important, is that that's when we accomplish that mission. One of the manners that he describes in verse 28 is he says to do this in all wisdom. We preach with all wisdom. That means that this declaration must be thorough. It must be careful. It must be accurate. You're wondering what we do during the week. That's a lot of it. Thorough, careful, hopefully, an, an accurate analysis of what God has to say. So that's one of his, that's his primary responsibility, I think, is to preach, to, to say the mystery. Secondly, uh, it would be to pray. Now, this one needs a, a demonstrated by the text. And, and there's, there's a possibility that this is not explicitly what's intended, but, but I think we can demonstrate it. In, in chapter 2, he starts out, and he says, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you. That word conflict, 
is, uh, it means to fight. And in this case, obviously, that's a metaphor, um, or at least a spiritual fight. So he says, I have this great passion for you. As it could describe an athlete in the arena, could describe a soldier waging war. And, and the idea is to present something very vigorous, very intense. That's what he's doing on their behalf. He has a conflict for them. So he says to you, once again, you'll see the kind of regional effect here, to you, the Colossians, to those in Laodicea, and to anyone who hasn't seen my face, that kind of regional effect. So we apply that locally, that there's a conflict that a pastor has for his family, for his local assembly. That's kind of an odd way to say it, right? We, we might say, I'm fighting for you. Now, how does he fight Particularly, how does Paul fight for someone he has never seen? In chapter 4, verse 12, Paul's talking about Epaphras in his, in his commendations to them at the end of the letter. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, he's their pastor, he greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers the same word. Epaphras has a great conflict for those Christians in the Lycus Valley. And how does that manifest itself when he, even when he's away from them? He is always laboring fervently for them in prayer. Why? That, and I think this is actually maybe not why. What is he saying in prayer? I think it's the content of his request. We'll obviously get there when we get there, but I think the content of his prayers is, God, please enable them to stand perfect and complete in all the will, in all your will. He's pouring himself out in prayers for them. And a lot of those same words are used in this text, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I think we could even make the argument that what we'll get to in a moment, which is the, the mission um, is that verses 2 and 3 describe Paul's prayer request for them, not just the results that are happening, but this is what he's praying, kind of like we saw in chapter 1. So he's preaching faithfully, and, he, and it takes, it's a labor of love, and it takes great time and effort and energy. And then he pours out himself in this war of prayer on their behalf, even when he's not with them. And I think that's one of the encouragements to you, um, to our church family. This is one of the blessings of membership is that you have a pastoral commitment that we are fighting for you in prayer. We are bringing you before the Father. This is one of the things that fills our time in the week as well is that we're at war. We're at spiritual war asking God to bless and to keep you and to complete you in Jesus Christ. So we as pastors following the example of the apostles are called to our knees for the family of faith. And the third thing, we preach and we pray with perseverance. This persevering aspect is, is littered all throughout this text. And you can see we're, we're jumping around a little bit. Uh, we're not quite walking through in the same way we normally do. But we're trying to draw these ideas. The mystery revealed has produced this preaching, praying pastor who does so with great perseverance. We look back in verses 24 through 26. He describes that in, in great detail there. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. 
and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Talk about that in a moment. For the sake of His body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the Word of God. A pastor is intended to joyfully suffer great difficulty that accompanies preaching and prayer, preaching Christ, fighting for the spiritual, spiritual success of the body. Paul says that his body, his physical body, was filling up with the afflictions left unsuffered by Christ. So that, that statement's very interesting, isn't it? And we, and we do have to be careful with it. I think all of us are already making the natural assumption of what it's not, that what he's saying is that, or what he's not saying, is that Christ's atonement, his suffering on the cross, was insufficient. And now Paul steps to the plate to complete what is lacking, to fill up the rest of it. In reverse imagery, that happens in some of the local faiths around us, right? We're going to fill up as much as we can, and then Christ fills the rest of it up, right? So we'll, we'll do goodness as much as we can, then Christ is the rest of the way good, and so we're fully good. So it's not that kind of idea. It's not that, you know, Jesus suffered to hear, and now Paul just, you know, finishes it off. No, it can't be that. That would be completely the antithesis of Paul's arguments in so many other places. Rather, I think what this is referencing is the ongoing implications of the suffering of Christ. As we're beginning to be realized by the apostles and the early church that suffering follows gospel proclamation. Jesus described that this was going to happen, right? You associate with me. You're unified with me. That will cost something, not just, um, you know, like you're not going to have as much fun in life or something like that, but that it costs something physically. There will be a cultural tax, cultural pain leveled against you. And so, how is Paul doing this? He says he fills it up in his flesh, so, I want to be careful here drawing the parallel, but certainly we look at Paul, okay, and we see him, this description in, in 2 Corinthians 11, I think. He's just thing after thing after thing. He suffers shipwreck. He suffers heartache. He suffers loneliness. He suffers uh, physical beatings and lashings and all of this. So you can see the description that he's filling up in his flesh. What Jesus, like there's more to be suffered, there's more, to be, there's more suffering for the gospel to be done and that, that Jesus didn't do. Jesus didn't suffer all the suffering for us. He did of, as far as justification is concerned, but not as far as walking after him is concerned. And so here Paul is just loading his body with physical affliction. Now, here's where the parallel, I do want to be careful because we are sitting here in a Western church, very free with very little physical affliction as it relates to preaching Christ. And yet I would say, 
carefully that there is more to this than just getting beat with a stick. That there is, in relation to the preaching and the prayer, this deep labor of spiritual love, there is a physical tax whereby someone bears in their body the marks of Christ. And one of the reasons I'd argue for that is that Paul's saying he does it not for Christ. Now, it's true, he is ultimately doing it for Christ. But he does it for them. He's doing this for the believers. They are the beneficiaries of all of this. And you see it all throughout the text. I rejoice in my sufferings for you. I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a servant according to the stewardship of God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery of Christ, now revealed to his saints, verse 26. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in order to present every man perfect in Christ. To this end I work. Verse chapter 2, I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, attaining to all riches. He just goes on all of this. It's the beneficiaries of this work, according to the design of God and how he's made his church to function, is the saints. It's like a predetermined, quantifiable quota of suffering. The apostles bore a heavy measure of the suffering, and the appointed pastors followed in order to serve God's family. I think this is what Paul's probably talking about in Philippians 1 when he says that I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. (laughs) To be clear, Paul doesn't do this so that the saints won't have to suffer, right? There were many saints that suffered following Paul, following their pastors. Um, So he's not doing it so that they won't have to suffer, but that they will have a clear declaration and an example of Christ when you do. That when you suffer, you have already seen a pattern of what suffering well looks like. You will follow, well, just as Christ went, and then Paul goes, and then the pastor goes, and then the people go. We all are in this sort of train following Christ is how it's intended to work. In this perseverance, I also want to point out one one place we haven't looked is verse 29. Uh, Just to describe some of the words that he's using here. He says, to this end, which is uh, the end of preaching, warning, teaching, and presenting every man perfect. To that end, Paul labors and he strives according to his working, which works in Paul mightily. And so what's happening here is he's describing, and as he has in a variety of ways, he said, suffering affliction, labor, striving. These four words, it's sort of a a whole picture of like, it's not easy. It's not an easy task. Here he says, to that end, I'm working. I'm exerting myself physically, mentally, spiritually, working hard, toiling, striving, struggling. These are all good words to describe it. 
And to evidence that it's passed along to the pastor, we have 1 Timothy 5.17 that says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who work, who labor, the same word in the word and in doctrine. So the picture presented is somebody who's sweating, (laughs) somebody who's always diligent, not lazy. It is often true And it's no secret that the pastorate, as much as it is a place for men to work hard for the saints, it's also a place for cowards and lazy people to hide. And that happens frequently. And it's a shame to the gospel. It's a shame to the responsibility, to the call, to the task. And by God's grace, that's not who I or Pastor Matt will be as he continues to hold us fast. And that's what's present at the end of verse 29, is there's this humble realization of the apostle and the pastor. I'm weak. Paul was weak. He was working, sweating, according to God's work, which was mightily working in him. So you see this person who is an instrument. A puppet is a little bit too far, right? It's not inanimate, but that he's a tool in the hands of the one who actually supplies the strength. It's how we're supposed to work. The shovel is not strong. He doesn't have the energy. The person behind the shovel does. And so he's saying, I have this humble realization that his strength is even more necessary for me Because I'm a weak vessel through whom God has chosen to manifest his strength. Paul describes this other ways when he says, you know, he has this thorn in the flesh, this affliction, and he pleads with God three times to remove it, and God says, no, my strength is sufficient for you. My strength will be demonstrated in your weakness. Or in 1 Timothy 1 that we looked at a few weeks ago, he says um, that, uh, sorry, I've just lost my thought. 1 Timothy 1. I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. So all of this idea of that God is the one who is working through the apostle and through the pastor. And it's not disconnected from preaching and prayer, is it? That we must give ourselves with renewed strength to this holy privilege. It's God that's speaking when, when the pastor preaches. It's God's voice. It's his words. And when we pray, we're interceding to the strong one, to God, the one who can accomplish growth, the one who, is, who will hold you fast and keep you safe to the end. But it doesn't change the reality that Paul, as Paul describes himself in other ways, that he, this apostle, is poured out like a drink offering. There's really nothing left at the end of the apostolic life. Let's say, in some ways, at the end of the pastoral life. There's a lot of just, our life is for you. My life is for you. Pastor Matt's life is for you. We are appointed by you and by God as servants of this family to preach and to pray. And so we'll commit to that. We will continue doing that. And, uh, and in so doing, this is, this is how God grows his body. So, and that, that's the third and final point. So we have the mystery, minister, and now the mission. Why is this all 
happening? And the answer is to present every person perfect in Christ. What's the goal of the work of preaching and prayer? Just to preach? Just to pray? You know, just to sound spiritual? No. It's that the body of Christ in its entirety, and here, our local family, would capture the beauty and the value of Christ in them. That you would hear it. You would see it. That it would be valuable to you. So this idea of being presented perfect in Christ, the end of verse 28, is the idea of maturity, of fullness, that the intended uh, result of preaching, which moves to suffering, is that growth occurs. Now, there's growth in the family of faith. This idea of presentation is, is interesting, right? That, that the apostle here presents people mature in Christ. And there may be something to a fu- this future illusion. It's not described with any sort of specificity, even in other places, but that as Christ presents his body to the Father, so there may be the apostle presenting the churches to the Father. And those churches, they have shepherds who are presenting these people to the Father. There is a demonstration, there is a look what the gospel has done. You've, you've accomplished it. They're mature. They're complete. This joyful presentation of individuals that, that know Him and that love Him, people who understand the gravity of His impact on every breath of their life, who through the albeit hellish circumstances of life, they battled in grace. They battled through divine power to fix their gaze again on Christ. These people who, who with patience through the frustration of physical brokenness waited for the promises to be fulfilled. That's this idea. It's working. We're growing. We're fixing our gaze on Christ. And we have the opportunity to do that together as a local family. We encourage each other towards that. The second place the, the purpose is kind of described is what I might suggest is the content of Paul's prayer. If not, it's certainly the purpose of why he's working, and that's chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And there's this fourfold purpose, and we'll end with this. Fourfold purpose in chapter 2, 2 through 3 is, one, that their hearts would be encouraged. Their heart is, as we talked about this a little bit up at family camp, for those of you who are there, but this heart is not so much referring to just the emotional part of a person, but that which is the animating center of their life. It describes them in their fullness. So he's saying that, that their persons would be spiritually fortified and built up. That's one of the purposes of this uh, preaching and prayer. Secondly, that they would be knit together in love. That this body would be unified. We would put aside anything and everything less than Christ for the purpose of lovingly walking together toward Christ as our singular hope. It's one of the distinctives of a Christian faith that they love one another. This is one of the ways that the world sees the gospel on display. So we have encouraged hearts knit together in love, and then these last two are grammatically wild. They're, very, they're, they're a little bit confusing. Uh, this, the third one is, he says literally, for all riches, the full assurance of understanding. Here translated, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. 
so associated with the abundance and the abundant richness, remember the treasure that is Christ, is one of two things. Either the assurance that we understand, meaning we understand confidently, this is what it says, this is what it means, I'm assured of that. Or it means uh, that understanding truly gifts me assurance of the faith, which is kind of how we talk about it most frequently. Like, do you have assurance of salvation? That kind of an idea. And what's interesting is that I think there's sort of two sides of the same coin. They describe a similar reality that the pair together beautifully describes what's supposed to be happening in the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. That faithful, careful pastors proclaim, explain, teach truth to the body. And the body, what is it doing? It's engaging, it's interacting, it's listening, it's hearing. And there's growth in the accurate knowledge of God that we would know confidently. And confident knowledge does what? That we learned in chapter one. It produces fruit. It implies growth in the assured confidence in Christ. So it's kind of, I think it's a both and is fair here. Encouraged hearts, knit together in love, fully assured in Christ, and finally, that we know the mystery. He says, to the knowledge of the mystery of God. The phrase that follows has no less than 15 textual variants which is a really, really big number. How should we, so some of you, it'll depend kind of on your translation, what you have following. You might have both of the Father and of Christ, which is what we read this morning. Or you may just have Christ. That you would um, grow to the knowledge of the mystery of God, Christ. And that variant is strongly supported, and is contextually clear. I think we're, we're supposed to read this, that, um, or what Paul wrote, I believe, is once again apposition. He did it earlier in, in chapter 1, that Christ is the mystery of God. And that's an important identification, an important reminder, particularly as he moves into the final phrase which may be, I know we had the Christological hymn, which was stunning, you know, the whole passage about Christ, elevated language. But this is also one of, uh, this is the pinnacle of Christology here. He says, in whom, in this mystery, Christ, the great treasure, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Any measure of increase in the spiritual satisfaction and progress of the saints is hidden in Jesus. There is no other treasure elsewhere. Any other wisdom is worldly wisdom. It's all in Him. And so while we say, look to Christ, while we say these things so very often, set your gaze there, trust in Christ, I know that's a simple statement, but if we mine it as we take time to delve into who he is, what he's done, why he did it, his heart, then we have everything that we could need. And as he does, Paul's also confronting, I think, the secret knowledge or the syncretism that's being practiced that I'm going to take Christ and then I'm going to add this and this and this, these other ideas, and now I have more of a a fuller, a heavier, a more meaningful spiritual meal. He says, 
No, you just introduced garbage to it. Take it out. Let him stand on his own. It's Christ alone. He's everything we could ever need. And so we return here again and again and again to this stunning Christology. So we have all three of these, this this mystery that's unveiled, which is Christ, the greatest treasure. We have the minister and his responsibility to preach and to pray with perseverance, even if that means all of him is poured out on behalf of the saints. That's a beautiful demonstration of following Christ. And his mission, the purpose of, of all of that work is the presentation of the body of Christ to the Father. We would stand before him together and would say, look what you have done. And you've done it through your beautiful means of preaching and prayer. And so here we stand complete in him. So as application, one of the things that's most intimidating, even saying these things and being one of your shepherds, is something that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 4. It says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We read that. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. It's intimidating. And so, you know, to Matt, my brother, myself, may we be faithful. May God give us the strength, as he promises here even, right? We move in his strength, but may we be faithful to him. And then the saints, a couple things. One, this service is to your advantage, Ephesians describes it even that the pastor is a gift. And this is, it's a weird sermon to say as a pastor, right? So what's the intended response? Well, it's not like sympathy, like, oh man, you just work so hard. That's not the point. Neither is it cheerleading, like you can do it, like just keep going. Like I'm, I hope you're like, <laughs> I don't know, it's not really the point. Neither is it avoiding, you're too busy, you're working too hard, I'll stay over here. It's none of that. The point and the response should be the very purpose of the preaching and prayer, which is see Christ, treasure Christ, love Him, because then it's working. And so it's not for the sympathy or anything like that. The point of my life is that you would see Christ more clearly and It is only by His grace that that could ever happen. And yet it's His design. And then I would encourage you to just read the next few verses this week because that's the response. Um, And He's going to describe how it guards, how the preaching and prayer guards you against false deceptions. And He's going to encourage you to simply put your roots down, to deepen in Christ. So there, next week really is the response of the saints to the work of the minister. Let's pray.